Welcome back to the second half of this here episode number 60. Hope you had a decent yeah. break. I did, but let's get right to it. Um, we're now going to talk about Rabbit Proof Fence, and Claude's going to give us the plot description for that movie. Yes, and I feel as though before I start, I need to explain the point of the Rabbit Proof Fence since it's not explained in the film. See, back in the 1700s, rabbits were introduced to Australia along with the first colony of British prisoners. And that wasn't really a problem, is what happened about 50 years later when two dozen wild rabbits were released into the country specifically for hunting purposes. The problem here is that the rabbits had no natural predators there and in Australia, and the population absolutely exploded. And as a result, all these rabbits did enormous damage to local vegetation and agriculture. And if this sounds like the plot of a original series Star Trek episode, you'd be right. This was the inspiration. Anyway, uh, between 1901 and 1907, the British government put up thousands of miles of fencing that was designed to keep the rabbits out of the Western Australian provinces. And over the next 50 years or so, the fence was maintained and upgraded to exclude dingoes and foxes in addition to the rabbits. And although the rabbit population has been mostly curtailed, the fencing, believe it or not, is all more or less in place. So, all that said, we open with title cards explaining that in the 1930s, Mr. A.O. Neville is the government representative who has complete control over the activities of the native Aborigines who live in Western Australia. And under the law, he has the right to seize children who are half Caucasian and half Aborigine, and they're called half-castes. Neville actually takes the time to explain his racist theories to a group of supporters, telling them that his plan is to train these people to work as servants or such and marry them to white people, essentially breeding out any trace of black that they might have. Hooray, genocide. We hear in voiceover an adult woman telling us that this is a true story about when she and her sister and her cousin were children. So, Neville uses that law to seize three half-caste girls. That would be Molly, the oldest, at 14, her 8-year-old sister Daisy, and their 10-year-old cousin Grace. They're taken from the village of Jigalong to the Moore River Native Settlement, a place that's somewhere between a concentration camp and a gulag for children. Now, the people there are strict. They're not permitted to speak in any language other than English. They're forced to pray to the Christian God before they eat, and they're evaluated to either become servants or breeding stock. But these people are actually, they're nice enough in this weird condescending way because they believe that they're genuinely doing what's best for these children. However, because the children's lives are very regimented and they don't appear to have any sanitary facilities and children who try to escape are actually tracked down by an Aborigine tracker named Mudu. Uh, whose own daughter lives in the camp, and those escapees, they get locked in a box for several days at a time, so it's still not so great. As it happens, we learn early in the film that Molly is a rather good tracker herself, and when she sees that a thunderstorm is coming, she considers it an opportunity to get away while the storm covers her tracks. She, Grace, and Daisy all leave at an opportune moment. And for a long while, we're talking several days here, they manage to elude Moodoo, but they're also not very clear on how they're going to find their way home, until a kind stranger mentions the rabbit-proof fence, which passes through their home village of Jigalong. Molly lights up and asks where the fence is, and the stranger points them in the right direction. It's practically a triumphant moment for the girls on the film when they finally reach the fence, but they don't know what the viewers do. It's still a long, long way to Jigalong. Meanwhile, back in the <clears throat> civilized world, uh, news is out that the girls are missing, and it's a black eye for Neville and his department. But the girls have been spotted in a few locations, and it's becoming clear that they're working their way along the rabbit-proof fence. Mudu is sent, along with a law officer named Riggs, to corner the girls from the north and the south. But the two men encounter each other without seeing the girls. Meanwhile, we discover that the girls have been following the wrong fence. You see, there are four fences altogether, and they're on the one that goes east to west, and they're moving westward. Uh, based on my research, they were probably walking along the number two north-south fence, which meets up with the number three east-west fence before it meets up with the number one north-south fence. It's kind of complicated, but basically, they need to get back to the number two north-south fence, and a friendly local suggests that they travel on the diagonal to save themselves at least 100 miles of walking. So for a while, they're not on the fence at all as they walk. 
Neville lets word get out that Grace's mother has moved for Jigalong to a village called Willuna, and a traveler, recognizing the girls, helps them but also gives them the bad information. Molly wants to continue to Jigalong, but Grace is adamant about making her way to Willuna by grabbing a train in a nearby town. Molly and Daisy leave her behind, but eventually decide to double back and pursue Grace and convince her to rejoin them. As they get to the town, they see Grace in the train station and they signal to her through whistling. Grace gets up to meet them, but she's almost immediately captured by Riggs. The traveler is there as well, and we hear that he's being rewarded for his efforts. Molly and Daisy stay hidden because they know there's nothing they can do at that point. The two girls continue at one point encountering the end of the fence as it reaches a kind of marshy flat. Molly is confident that the fence will resume and the two girls continue on their way, with Molly at one point collapsing from heat and exhaustion at one point. But when she recovers, she sees the continuation of the fence and what's more, some familiar-looking terrain in the distance. Finally, after nine weeks of travel, the girls have made it back to Jigalong, nearly getting caught one more time, but instead of finding the girls... Riggs instead runs into Molly's grandmother and mother, who is brandishing a spear, and Riggs wisely backs off. We hear in voiceover an adult Molly noting that they did make it home, and then they immediately went to hide in the desert. She also explains that Gracie died and never returned to Jigalong. Molly got married and had two daughters, and she and the girls were taken back to the Moore River facility. She managed to escape a second time with one of her daughters, Annabelle, and again walked back home, but when Annabelle was three, she was again taken away, and that was the last Molly saw of her. Molly says that she and Daisy are never going back to that place, and at the end of the film, we're treated to a few seconds of footage of the real-life Molly and Daisy. We get title cards telling us that Neville retired in 1940, that resettlement of the Aborigines continued in one form or another until the late 1960s, and that these people are referred to as the Stolen Generation. And Sean, we're going to have to have a little off-camera discussion, or rather off-mic discussion, with regard to having to screen a film where the credits are mostly in Comic Sans. Okay. (laughs) So, I have to be honest here. This was, of the limited, admittedly, amount of movies I have watched featuring Aborigines... Uh, feature films, I should say, not documentaries. I haven't, must confess, I haven't really seen any doc, many, if any, documentaries on Aborigines. Rabbit Proof Fence is not my favorite of those. My favorite movie about Aborigines is uh, the Fred Skepsi movie from 1978 that was released in 1980 called The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith. And originally, when I thought about pairing Once Were Warriors with another movie, um, The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith was not available to stream anywhere, which is one of the reasons why I chose Rabbit Proof Fence. It is... Uh, since that has been made available to stream on a few places, including Tubi, if you're willing to watch it for the commercial, watch it with commercials, or to rent it on Amazon, among other places, or to watch it through Roku channel if you subscribe to that, among other places. And again, it is very much worth watching, Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith, though... Rabbit Proof Fence is also very much worth watching as well. And before I get into why I think it's worth watching as well as why I thought it was a good fit with Once for Warriors, <clears throat> excuse me, let me ask you, Claude, did you like this movie? I actually did like this film. You know, it was, it was you know, kind of an uplifting story. You, you had to wonder... And, and my wife actually watched this one with me and, and, you know, well, when they get back to the village, aren't they just going to get snatched up again? And, and so you, you had that always in the back of your head that like the, 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 you have a few moments like this in the film where you're, you're looking at these girls and what they're going to do. And, you know, there's a certain naivete that they have going on that you're kind of anticipating, you know, what's going to happen. So for instance, 
you know, when we get that scene with the girls and they spot the fence and they start running and it's almost like Cecily Tyson in Sounder, you know, and, and, and doing that running scene, the same kind of thing is like, they're so happy to see the fence. You know, congratulations. You still got a couple thousand miles to walk, you know, and, and similarly, isn't somebody going to figure out that they're walking along the fence? And sure enough, they do. So, you know, how do they not get busted there? And what happens when they get to the village? So you're, you're always left with these questions in your head. And for the most part, they do manage to get answered for you, which is kind of cool, except for the idea of their understand or their, their lack of understanding just how far it is to get, you know, back to their home village. Right now. One reason I wanted to do this movie is that this was the first of a handful of movies that were about traditions uh, or customs and laws that you would think any civilized society would recognize as being barbaric, but actually were on the books for a very long time into the 20th century. Other movies like that that I can think of are The Magdalena Sisters, uh, written and directed by Peter Mullen from 2002, a movie that's sort of a companion to that, uh, Philomena, directed by Stephen Frears from a decade later. Both of those are about the fact that in Ireland for the longest time, women who were considered mentally unstable or loose or had children out of wedlock uh, were made to were taken by their parents to these places run by abusive Catholic nuns and forced to work in sweatshop conditions in laundries. And as Philomena shows, the, in particular, the babies any of these women had were given up for adoption without the mother's consent. And in many cases, the mothers were never able to see their children ever again, which makes it even more heartrending. And then also a movie um, directed by Ken Loach's son, Jim Loach, called Oranges and Sunshine, which is about the home children's scandal where children from... Uh, were children in England who were from the um, lower-class uh, families. And um, it was done by Annie McPherson starting in the mid-1980s. They were relocated to Australia, Canada, New Zealand, and South Africa. And the reason why the movie is called Oranges and Sunshine is because the children were promised to uh, work in fields and pick oranges for themselves and they'd work in sunshine. Instead, of course, they worked in horribly abusive conditions. And again, as with Rabbit Proof Fence, as with um, the Magdalena sisters and Philomena, you know, as with those stories, all of this was done in the name of religion, in particular Christianity. So, yeah, none of these stories shine a um, kind of light on Christianity, but you know what? You have to own up to the bad as well as the good, which leads me to talk about the villain here, uh, A.O. Neville, who, although Claude did not mention, is played in the movie by Kenneth Branagh. Yes. Now, we've talked in other movies before, and Claude alludes to, alluded to it in his synopsis here. Neville 
is portrayed here as someone who doesn't think he's doing bad. He actually believes that he is helping half-caste children become integrated into society, white society, of course, even though what he wants to do ultimately is stomp out the aborigine half of the race to make them as close to white as they possibly can. And Kenneth Branagh, it must be said, is an actor who I have enjoyed in uh, some projects and directed some good movies, particularly two of his Shakespeare movies, Much Do About Nothing and his version of Hamlet. Mm -hmm. But it also has to be said He is a ham (laughs) in a lot of his performances. Sometimes that's a good thing, as with Much Ado About Nothing and Hamlet. But other times it can be kind of off-putting. So it's kind of impressive that Noyce got Brana to tone it down a lot in this performance. You know, he rarely gets upset. He doesn't raise his voice much. He does show a little irritation here and there, but he's calm even when he's being at his most condescending and despicable. So you do get that he really believes what he's talking about is good, and it's a very powerful and understated portrayal of someone who is pretty damn repellent. Oh yeah, to be sure. And, and um, I, th- I think it's it's also worth noting that that as he is explaining his theory and and showing the pictures of like, okay, here's the Aborigine person, and here's the half caste uh, child, and here is the the third child who you know is, appears to be nearly white, and explaining this whole thing and showing the slides and. My wife is like, is this for real? Is this is this for real? Like over and over again. And this is somebody who does have some Native American heritage, like in her fairly recent past. And so she started comparing it to Trail of Tears kind of thing. And I said, yeah, this is a true story. And, you know, what's more, you got to think about this happened at a time that like, I mean, you're saying Trail of Tears. That was like a long time ago. There are people still alive who are around at the time that this happened they might have been kids or whatever but you know the fact is this is like recent history for a lot of these folks and and i think that's an important thing that that we do have to confront is that there's a lot of times when we have these terrible terrible things that that happen and we think about you know especially with with racism and you know while things aren't necessarily excellent they're better than they were say when you and i were kids but the fact is when you and I were kids, it was pretty terrible. And not long before that, it was even worse. And and so there are certain aspects of this, like that was, that particular scene was a little bit of an exposition dump, but at the same time, it was a very necessary one because we do tend to overlook or forget what's in our recent past. That's something we're going to be talking about a lot in one of the movies we're talking about in our next episode. Ooh, okay. Let's so not spoil that's it. That's a good point. Now, the another major reason I wanted to um, pair this movie with Once Were Warriors is like Once Were Warriors – Although that has um, male characters who are important, ultimately it's the women, or in this case, the girls, Mm -hmm. who carry this. And as we talked about in our previous episode uh, with shoplifters, uh, the way that Hirokazu Kurita worked with the children, Philip Noyce, who I'm going to talk a little more about in a bit, um, worked a lot with the children to let them appear natural 
and not just acting. And a lot of credit for that goes to uh, Rachel Maza, who was who is Aborigine and who was the acting coach for the three young girls who appeared in this movie. Um, Evelyn Sampy, who plays Molly and who actually, like Molly, ran away from filming a couple of times. Tiana Sansbury, who <laughs> Method plays actress. Daisy. <laughs> yes. And Laura Monaghan, who plays Gracie. And the three of them are entirely natural performers. Mm -hmm. You don't see any of them really acting. And they, in addition to Noyce and Rachel Maza, uh, there was another person who sort of helped out with the child actors, who I'm going to talk about also a little bit later. But... Again, that's why or one of the reasons why the story is so compelling, because these children feel like real children. They don't feel like Hollywood or movie children. No, they don't. And and again, more is the pity, because uh, I know for two of them, this was their only film. Uh, and then for Everlyn Sampy, she did a few episodes of a TV series. And again, that was that was it for her. So she has not been seen since about 2009 on film. Right now, let's talk about Philip Noyce, because he is the other reason I wanted to pair these two movies together. When we did our mini episode on the auteur theory, one of the reasons I brought up uh, that I disliked the auteur theory, or at least the critics who practice it, is because they believed that um, if a director was in their pantheon, that meant that they were incapable of making a bad movie. But I also believe that the converse is true, that a director who has made bad movies or middling movies can once in a while hit it out of the park. And uh, Lee Tamahori, like I said, after Once Were Warriors, I don't think he did very well in his career as far as the movies he directed go, but at least he has that one movie to be proud of. And while Noyce has had an up and down career, um, he started out with a movie from 1977 called Backroads, which I have not seen. It is available online if you're able to hunt for it. Uh, but apparently that was important to Rabbit Proof Fence, and I'm going to get to why in a moment. And then he did a movie called Newsfront, which is about the folks who shot footage for the newsreels that they used to show in front of Hollywood films and films from other films in other countries back in the day. And it's a great subject that should have had a better movie, is all I'm going to say. Okay. And then he did a movie called uh, Heat Wave, which is one of two movies based on a true story about a bunch of people in a housing project in Australia trying to fight developers. And while it's not a great movie, it's a much better movie than Newsfront, thanks to a terrific performance in the lead uh, by Judy Davis as one of the uh, activists. And he first came to Hollywood's attention with a 1989 thriller called Dead Calm with Sam Neill that also introduced the world to Nicole Kidman. Um, she and Neil play an estranged couple who, while on um, a boating trip on their yacht, pick up this stranger played by Billy Zane, who then 
starts to menace them. And it was compared to Hitchcock, the movie, by admiring critics. And while I wouldn't go that far, it is a very good, tense movie. And then he came to Hollywood and started to make blockbusters. Some of them were good. He did two adaptations of Tom Clancy novels with Harrison Ford, Patriot Games and Clear and Present Danger, that were both much better than the novels. But he also did uh, Sliver, which is an awful movie, an (laughs) awful adaptation of a good novel by Ira Levin, the guy who's most famous probably for writing Rosemary's Baby and The Stepford Wives. And he did a very incoherent uh, version of The Saint based on the TV show, which was based on the uh, long-running movie serials. And he did an okay but not great movie with Denzel Washington and Angelina Jolie called The Bone Collector, which is a serial killer movie, which is not a genre I'm fond of. And originally, he was going to direct another Tom Clancy adaptation called The Sum of All Fears. But while he was waiting for a script to be finished, the woman who wrote the screenplay for this movie, Christine Olsen, who had seen Backroads, kept calling him and calling him about the book that was the basis for this movie, um, which is called Follow the Rabbit Proof Fence by Doris Pilkington Garamara, who is the daughter of uh, Molly Craig. And at first, Noyce wasn't enthusiastic, but then he read the material and decided that with the frustration that he was feeling with um, some of all fears, it would be nice to going back to low-budget filmmaking again. And this was not the only very good movie he directed that was released that year. He also did a stellar adaptation of Graham Greene's The Quiet American with Michael Caine and Brendan Fraser in the title role that was released in 2002. I do think Rabbit Proof Fence, however, is a better movie. It is a simple story, but as Tamahori did with Once Were Warriors, Noise tells it very cleanly and very simply and very and it's very powerful as a result. Yeah, I think I think you're right in that. And and I actually in writing the synopsis for this particular um film, you know, I I, I almost felt as though like as I got toward the end of it, I'm like, this one feels short. And maybe it's because I've gotten used to writing long synopses, but you know, the fact is, you're right. It's it's a fairly simple story. The girls are picked up, the girls escape, and that's fairly early in the film. And we spend a lot of time with the girls walking and having their little adventures. And there's not a lot of, you know, people that they encounter. And when they do, it's brief. You know, they either help them and send them on their way or, you know, not much really happens. And and so when we get to that point where, and I'm writing this thing and like, and they get to the end of the fence and she gets to the other side and all of a sudden she's home and I'm like, wait a minute, did I leave out some stuff? And I actually had to go back. No, it's just, it's, it's a fairly straightforward story and that's all there is to it. I mean, even despite like having dedicated half a page to stuff that wasn't in the film at all, but here we are, you know? Right. And originally the movie was going to start out with archival footage of half case aborigines that was coming mixed in with the actresses who are playing the girls in the movie, Mm. which would have made it a little more complicated. But Veronica um, Tanay, who was one of the editors of the movie and who, Jenna, sorry, who took over editing from John Scott when Scott became busy with editing 
the quiet American, she convinced Noyce that it would be better to start out with what they did in the beginning because it would be more emotional. Yeah. Yeah, and that's certainly now, that's something that you get when, when the when the girls are first taken. You're dropped right into the middle of that action and, you know, as they are grabbed up and like tossed into the cars and they're, you know, fighting them off and the the, the adults like don't take the bait. And they know it's coming and at the same time they're still going to fight like hell to try and keep their kids and you are right there for it and you are hoping against hope that what's about to happen isn't going to happen but unfortunately it does and so yeah your heart is breaking for these people as this particular event takes place now another reason why i wanted to talk about this movie in particular is the actor who plays the tracker uh the girls and by the way from what little i've seen uh, for other Aborigine movies, including The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith and the little that I've read, Aborigines were often forced to track other Aborigines or half-cased people by white Australians. And the actor who is playing the Aboriginal track tracker in this movie called Moodoo, uh, the actor is... Uh, guy by the name of David David Gupalil. Now, um, Coincidentally, first... my wife is downstairs watching the right stuff and she might be up to that scene where he appears. I was going to get <laughs> to that, but okay. Um, he was, because sadly he passed away um, last year, um, he was a musician and a dancer who was discovered by Nicholas Rogue when he made his uh, solo directorial debut, uh, Walkabout, which came out in 1971, which is about two children, one played by Rogue's son Luke, the other played by Jenny Agutter, who run away from their father when he tries to pull a murder-suicide on all three of them. And Gopalil plays a aborigine who is on walkabout, which is an aboriginal ritual that apparently all aborigine males uh, who live in the wild uh, have to go through when they're... Um, when they're teenagers or what we would consider teenagers and he joins up with them at one point and although mostly he stuck with his music career he did do a lot of other movies probably the most familiar to american audiences aside from his brief appearance in the right stuff, as Claude mentioned, where he's seen when um, one of the astronauts is in Australia helping to track John Glenn's flight around the world. And then also he's got a brief but memorable appearance in the first Crocodile Dundee movie, where he plays an Aborigine friend of the title character, and he's performing the same function as Graham Greene, the First Nations actor, not the author, performed in the movie version of Maverick. That is, he is kidding a stereotypical character, at one point, the female lead, who's a photojournalist, wants to take his picture, and he says, no, you can't take my picture, miss, and she assumes, oh, he's afraid um, that the taking a picture will help steal away his soul, and he says, no, you've got lens cap on. <laughs> and he's also in uh, Baz Luhrmann's Unwieldy, Western uh, epic Australia with Nicole Kidman 
and Hugh Jackman. And he was in another movie that came out the same year as Rabbit Proof Fence called The Tracker, where he plays another tracker. And according to Noyce, Gupil had a difficult time with this role until he figured out that the reason why the girls were getting away from him because he thought, well, if I'm such a good tracker, why are they, why are they always a step ahead of me? And his rationale was that secretly inside, he wanted them to get away. That spelled out, that kind of thinking is spelled out a lot more in the movie, The Tracker, but... In this, it's done in more subtle ways because he doesn't have a lot of dialogue here and he's able to communicate just with his eyes and his facial expression, his, the fact that he's good at his job but reluctant at it. Yeah, and, and you get that well early in the film because his daughter does live in that, in that uh, camp there. And he asks about getting transferred out of there. And, well, your daughter still is here, so it's probably better off if you stay. So he's basically coerced into doing what he's doing there. And so you do have where he these, these little tiny little moments of admiration for the girls staying ahead of him, A, and a couple of times when you think, like, yeah, I think he's kind of rooting for them. And even wonder if you're going to get a moment where he catches up with them and lets them go. Uh, if I could just back up for a second, this is this is kind of interesting. But that first film we, we you talked about for him, Walkabout, uh, that was directed by Nicholas Rogue, who was the director of Performance, which we talked about. Co-director. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. <clears throat> um, which we talked about just a couple of episodes. Uh, in in uh, for and and but. The thing that that's kind of interesting at that time, this was a big deal casting this particular person for that particular role, because my understanding is that until that time, when you had an Aborigine character in an Australian film, they would get a white guy and just put on a ton of makeup. And so this was the first time they had actually gotten an actual Aborigine to play an Aborigine. Yes, uh, Australia had the same shameful tradition as Hollywood did. But this uh, is also just a couple of years after they stopped the the Stolen Generation activities. Right. Now, um, another reason I chose this movie is because of the score, which was written by Peter Gabriel, mm. who we talked about uh, when doing the last te- when we talked about Last Temptation of Christ, he did the score for that. Now, as with a movie that he scored um, early in his career, Birdie, there's a lot of music in this movie that you might recognize if you um, heard. Uh, one of his solo albums. In the case of Birdie, it was Security. In this case, it was an album he did called Up, particularly a song he did with the, I think it was the Blind Boys of Alabama called Sky Blue. You hear that uh, sort of humming in the background as the end credits roll, the uh, ho, 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 uh, music that plays. But as with Last Temptation, Gabriel draws on the traditions of Aboriginal music, and it doesn't feel condescending you know, oh, I'm a white guy who's just discovered world music. He's really invested a lot of time paying attention to the music. So it does feel authentic and of that period. And for me, it works very well in the movie. Uh, yeah, for the most part, it works. But at the same time, this is uh, this is a little bit of whitewashing here. And so... You could make an argument that maybe they should have just hired an Aboriginal musician to. Hey, they had Gullapillil, so like you know, he he plays the didgeridoo, you know. But but 
Um, you, yeah, you you could make an argument that they should have just hired somebody well, authentic you for could this. Also, you could also make the argument that they should have uh, not had a white guy directing the movie either. But Noyce, yeah. as Olsen would be the first one to say, was her choice, and he asked the right people, uh, you know, help me with this. And so that's why this doesn't feel like something like, say, The Kite Runner, which is a movie about a uh, Middle, East, Middle Eastern characters directed by a white guy. Right. So, and you can tell when watching it. You can't really tell here. Now, another... Uh, thing I wanted to bring up about this movie is the cinematographer Christopher Doyle who of course we talked about with In the Mood for Love and he does a does a good job with this movie as well um, with the film stocks that he's using um, whether he's shooting the children, um, the film stock was done, that was used there, um, allowed him to shoot more quickly with the children so they wouldn't get impatient waiting around for them to set things up. Whereas with the adults, they, um, you know, used a more traditional film stock because the adult actors, they understood what had to be done. And so they were willing to be more patient. Um, another thing that we should know is that while the mo the real events that happened took place in Western Australia, the movie was actually shot for the most part in Southern Australia because Noyce and Doyle considered it more cinematic. And even there, as with other movies um, that we've talked about in our Around the World series, um, he used CGI, particularly of footage of when the girls are in the desert, anything, any greenery that's in the desert there, CGI. Wow, okay. And this is like the other movies that we've talked about in this series that use CGI. This is, to, this is another example that CGI or digital effects can be used in a movie that is not an action movie, that is not a blockbuster type movie. It can be used for smaller scale movies to make something look convincing. And it is convincing to look at here. Yeah, it, it actually is. And that, that act, uh, frankly, that comes as a surprise to me. I did not know that part. Well, uh, that's... That I learned from watching the uh, documentary that's included on the DVD and then also watching the movie with the commentary on the DVD. Hmm. Now, one last thing that I want to bring up before we wrap this up, along with Kenneth Branagh, the other actor in the movie that you might recognize uh, now, uh, you wouldn't be, have recognized him probably then, is the actor who plays Constable Riggs. Uh, that is Jason Clark. Mm -hmm. um, he has not played a lot of Australian characters since this one so you might be thrown at first if you're watching this now and thinking oh is that his real voice but yes he is from australia and of course he's gone on to movies like zero dark 30 mm -hmm. um and one of the terminator movies 
and also a TV show, which I think I mentioned when we talked about the, the Departed, the best Whitey Bulger story that's been t- fictional Whitey Bulger story that's been told in movies and TVs for me, the TV show Brotherhood. Uh, but he he may not be in this movie up to the level of what he's done since then, but he does a good job here, I think, in the role of Riggs, especially in the scene where Molly's mother is threatening him and he decides, okay, screw this, I'm out of here. Yeah. yeah, I mean, for the most part, he he, he could you know, play this kind of like, you know, hapless Keystone cop kind of guy, you know, who's constantly being thwarted by the girls, but he doesn't really have to. And, and, and frankly, he doesn't, he, he's, he's a generally competent fella for the most part, although he does have that moment where he can't go any further in the car because he didn't bring enough uh, gasoline with him. But, um, you know, I, I think in the scenes where we see him and he's taking the actions that he's taking, he's he comes off as, you know, pretty, pretty natural. I mean, even at the point where he has to uh, where he, he grabs uh, Grace is, um, you know, he, he he's like just doing his job, you know, and and doing it with with some competency. And so uh, it, it's um, it's it's a believable role and he, he does well with it, you know, especially considering it's relatively early in his career. Right. Now, uh, one other thing I just remembered, um, although I did not realize this at the time, Rabbit Proof Fence was not the first uh, popular cult, pop culture depiction of the story of the stolen children. Uh, way back in the mid to late 80s, Midnight Oil on um, their album Diesels and Dust did a song called The Dead Heart, yeah. which is about these stolen children. I, di- I have to admit, I did not realize that at the time. And of course, um, even though I liked the song and still do, this being way before the age of Google, I uh, wouldn't have been inspired to look up and say, oh, hey, what is this song about? But yes, this story has been known to Australians for a very long time. And actually, there are still people in Australia who think that the government never should have apologized for what they did to these children. Hmm. Yeah. Anyway, do you have anything that you want to add before we wrap this up, Claude? Just one more thing. It did warm my heart a little bit to see the the two women at the end. And, you know, at the, yes. to- at the time, they were in roughly their mid-80s. And um, my understanding is that that particular piece of footage was actually gotten... It was like one of the first things that they shot because these women were of advanced age. They were yes. not very healthy. And so they basically weren't sure, like, are they going to last until the end of filming? But uh, Molly at least did die a couple of years after this film was made and released. So it is entirely possible, especially given that the film was given its world premiere in the village of Jigalong, that she did get to see her story come to life on the film. Which is kind of nice yeah. if it did happen. So that concludes our Around the World series, and I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope this just shows that as far as movies go, there is a world and a method outside of Hollywood, even though Hollywood has made some very good movies. It's nice to be able to um, widen your cinematic palette a little once in a while. So this is the part where we tell you that both Rabbit Proof Fence and Once We're Warriors are available on DVD. I happen to have both of them on DVD. Oh, so you're loaning them out then, are you? um, Yeah, not so much. Okay. 
Yeah. But if you prefer to watch them streaming, uh, once we're warriors, you could stream if you subscribe to Canopy through your local library. Or if you subscribe to a uh, new channel called Film Movement Plus, mm. or you can rent or buy it through Amazon, Google Play, Microsoft, or YouTube. Uh, you can also buy it from Apple TV or Vudu. As with as for Rabbit Proof Fence. You can currently um, stream it if you subscribe to Hoopla or Paramount Plus, or if you subscribe to Paramount Plus through Amazon or Roku, or you can rent or buy it through Amazon, Apple TV, or many other streaming services. Groovy. Uh, What's coming up next? Well, we are, next, we are re- you're not going to leave us in Australia. We're coming back to the U.S., are we No, not? we are coming back to the U.S. Okay. And as we alluded to when we talked about um, Rabbit Proof Fence, we're going to talk about movies dealing with the past. Well, mm. characters dealing with their own past, although that can include sociological, uh, cultural and uh, historical as well as personal. And the movies we're talking about are from 1996, Lone Star, written and directed by John Sayles, and from 2003, Mystic River, directed by Clint Eastwood. Both movies are available on DVD. Again, I own both of them on DVD as well. But if you prefer to watch them online, you can currently stream Lone Star if you subscribe to Hoopla. Or you can rent or buy it through Amazon, Apple TV, and most other streaming services. As for Mystic River... You can rent or buy it through Amazon, Apple TV, Google Play, and most other streaming services. And you can always go to our website, wordsandmovies.com, if you have a question or comment. Or you can email us. Our email address is wordsandmoviespod at gmail.com and we also have a Facebook page Words and Movies and you can find myself Sean Gallagher on Facebook as well you can find me on that same book of face under my own name Claude Call and you can also check out my other podcast How Good It Is at howgooditis.com so thank you for listening and we'll see you next time yes thank you for listening alex please take us away this is your announcer alexander blackman with the closing credits this show was produced by sean gallagher and claude call with editing and post-production by claude with some help from ophonic audio clips are used under fair use rules for commentary and educational framing Everything else is copyrighted by Claude Call and Sean Gallagher. The theme music you're bopping along to right now is by Solar Flare and is used under a Creative Commons license. Podcast hosting is provided by Spotify for podcasters. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon.